morning we'll be in uh, Job, Job chapter 33 and chapter 34. So you can turn there in your Bibles if, uh, if you want to know where that's at in your Bible. It's, you open it to the middle, to the Psalms. Just jump forward just a little bit. I think I said jump back last week. I was wrong. You want to jump forward. So Job uh, chapter 34. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read for us uh, verses 10 through 15 of chapter 34, and then we're going to look at the passage together. Um, Job 34, 10 through 15 says this. This is God's word. Therefore, listen to me, you men of understanding. Far be it from God to do wickedness, and from the Almighty to commit iniquity. For he repays man according to his work, and makes man to find a reward according to his way. Surely God will never do wickedly, nor will the Almighty pervert justice. Who gave him charge over the earth, or who appointed him over the whole world? If he should set his heart on it, if he should gather to himself his spirit and his breath, all flesh would perish together and man would return to dust. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word this morning, that we can come and we can behold and we can hear your word. I pray, Lord, that we would pay mind to it, that, Lord, whatever is said here this morning that accurately represents what you say, I pray that everyone here would remember. But, Lord, if there's anything that it doesn't represent what you, you're, you're saying in your word, would we all forget it and pay no mind to it? Anoint my lips this morning. Open our ears and our eyes to see and behold wonderful things from your word. Do that, we pray, in our midst, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen. So the titles for today's message is um, when, when God Shows Up, and it's speaking truth to sufferers, and it's the second part of that. Uh, but last week, I want to I wanna, um, give you what our point was for last week, and it's on your notes there in front of you. Um, uh, it, it's this, essentially. Since sufferers need to hear God's perspective... We must graciously, prophetically, and impartially speak. Okay, so we're talking about this topic of speaking truth to people who are suffering, which is a really hard thing to do. Uh, but I, wanna, I want you to keep in your mind as you think about doing that, uh, there should be, go to the triangle, uh, Tony, yeah, there it is. So there's really three realities for a Christian in any given moment. And this can be, this is true at all times in, in any given moment. We are simultaneously... Saints, and that's what's at the top, as well as sinners, as well as sufferers. And I want to just remind us, as we, as we think about like these three realities, I want them to be in the forefront of our mind, because the sufferer's piece is where we've seen Job. Now, in his suffering, what we've seen happen to him is he's moved from sufferer, not just to sufferer by itself, but sufferer into sinner. And I want you to notice, and this is what, this is what Elihu's calling out, and he's speaking truth to a man who's suffered a lot. And, and I think we can learn a lot here on how to speak to sufferers. But I want you to notice, I just want to point out a few things that Elihu did prior to speaking truth. I don't want us to miss this. 
Because if you think what I'm saying is just go down to the funeral home and start telling people they need to just repent, you're missing what I'm saying, okay? Like, notice what he did prior to this. So go to that next slide there, Tony. So prior to speaking truth, I want you to notice the things he did. He, one, he sat with Job in his suffering and just wept. And we saw that. He sat in sackcloth and ashes and just cried with Job. For a week he did that. For a week he sat and cried with him. Then two, he listened, and this is what the majority of Job has been, listening with patience. He sat and listened with patience. For 30-something chapters, he listened with patience. And then thirdly, he allowed room for Job to lament his present suffering. He didn't, everything he said, he didn't say, well, that's not correct. Well, that's, that's not right, Job. That's bad, that's bad theology. No, 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 no. He didn't do that. He let him lament. And there's a lot we can learn. And then finally, four, this is what he's doing here. He's asking questions, and I'm going to add, he prayed. I hope he prayed during that time. I'm going to add that for us. So these four pieces actually preceded all that we're going to see today. So we can't miss this. If you hear what I'm saying today, and you don't have these four pieces in your brain, you're going to think I'm a jerk. (laughs) And I want you to see that the suffering presented or speaking truth to sufferers is something that it, it doesn't just happen overnight. We don't just immediately start lecturing sufferers. But I want you to see two realities today that, that Elihu is beginning to, to preach to Job in this way. And, and what they do, they do two things. So the first one is, and I don't have any fill-in-the-blanks for you today, so you're just going to have to bear with me on that. But the first one is that God is gracious, and His speech intends to save. That God is grace, gracious, and His speech intends to save. Let me give you an example. So Jack, Jack was a guy, he was a, um, uh, let me make sure I'm getting this right, yeah, yeah, he was in his, old, he was in his older years, but J- Jack felt de- dejected. He'd been married to Joanne for 30, 30 years. Their children were finally raised, and he retired early to enjoy the golden years. But those retirement years did not prove to be golden. His doctor discovered intestinal cancer. He faced chemotherapy, sickness, and no guarantee of recovery. He withdrew from family and friends, brooding over his bad luck. He spiraled deeper and deeper and deeper into the pit of self-pity. That example of Jack is very, um, I think it's a good example to what can happen to someone who suffers. Something bad happens, and they begin to think, God doesn't really care. God, he's, he's distant. He, this thing shouldn't have happened to me. It's not deserved to happen to me. And I want you to see first that when we see God is gracious, we need to also be in mind that a, a sufferer is always tempted to see that God's not gracious. And as, as much as it makes sense to us or doesn't make sense to us, I want us to see that the temptation for a sufferer is to believe that God is somehow silent that God is somehow gr- ungracious to us and He's not speaking. So I want you to notice, go to, now jump to verse, or chapter 33 and go to verse 1 and notice what Elihu says. So I want you to see the words of Elihu. And his words essentially are just simply, heed the prophet's words. Listen to what he says. Uh, he says, but now hear my speech, O Job, and listen to all my words. Behold, I open my mouth, and the tongue in my mouth speaks. So he's saying, Job, hear what I'm saying. And, and you notice the title is called When God Shows Up. But God hasn't spoken yet. 
I'm arguing, though, that Elihu is, is beginning to prep the way for the Lord to speak. He's prophetically speaking in this way. But notice what he says in verse 3. So he gives several reasons why Job should listen. And here's the first. He says, because he's, in, he's sincere. He says, because I'm sincere, you should listen to me. He says in verse 33, my words declare the uprightness of my heart, and my lips know they speak sincerely. So he's not coming to Job to say, look how right I am. He's coming to Job because he says, I love you. I love you, and I want you to know how much I love you. And so that's the first one. I want you to see also, it's because he's made from the Spirit. So verse, uh, look down to verse 4. He says, the Spirit of God has made me. The breath of the Almighty gives me life. And he's not saying, so he's coming sincerely. He's coming saying, I'm not coming to you in myself. I'm coming to you from the Spirit that has given me understanding. And then thirdly, we see him say, he's cut because of, he's, he's your equal, because I'm your equal. That's what he says. He said, behold, verse 6, jump down to verse 6. He says, behold, I am toward God as you are. I too was pinched off from a piece of clay. But going back to this Genesis picture of God forming Adam from the dust, he says, I'm just like you. I'm no different than you. I'm your equal. And then seven, jump down to verse seven, he says, because I won't pressure you. This is the other reason. So he's sincere. He's made from God's spirit. He knows he's his equal. And fourthly, he's not going to pressure him. Look what he says in verse four or seven. He says, behold, no, no fear of me need terrify you. My pressure will not be heavy upon you. And Elihu's just coming to Job and he's saying, I've, I, I'm prepping all this by saying, I'm your equal. I'm sincere. I love you. I'm not going to pressure you. But then, this is the piece we need to get when we speak to sufferers. And we ourselves suffer. We need others to do this as well. He corrects him. So this next section, I want us to see the correction. And he says, why you're wrong. Listen to what he says, why you're wrong. Jump down to verse 8 of chapter 33. He says, surely you have spoken in my ears, and I've heard the sound of your words. You say, I'm pure, without transgression. I'm clean, and there is no iniquity in me. Now, I want to be clear. Job has not said that he's sinless. He said in multiple places, Job 13, 26, he said, he says, for you write bitter things against me and make me inherit the iniquities of my youth. So Job's not saying he's sinless. But what Elihu is hearing in this is a kind of self-righteousness that has begun to crop up within Job. And Elihu is now confronting, he's coming and he's correcting Job's self-righteous attitude. A self-righteous attitude that's beginning to form in Job, and I would argue begins to form in every sufferer. And you say, you're probably like, what, what do you mean? What do you, what do you mean that a self, self-righteous attitude begins to form in a sufferer? What I mean by that is that oftentimes in suffering, when a person suffered for so long, you think back to Jack, he, he lived his whole life, he worked really hard, he gets to retirement, and his expectation and his hope is, I'm going to live my golden years. And when that's taken away from him, the first thought is, I didn't deserve this. I didn't deserve this. This isn't what I deserved. And Elihu's coming to him and saying, you're wrong. It's not that you, just that you deserve this. He's not saying that you deserve this. But you're wrong in seeing that God is silent. Though it may be hard to hear, oftentimes sufferers struggle with this same self-righteous attitude that Job is struggling with here which is why they need our correction. They need us to speak on God's behalf to them. 
And maybe you're a sufferer here today. Maybe you're like, yeah, I've been walking through this season for a really long time. And I would just encourage you, if you don't have someone speaking truth into your life in any capacity, you need it. Because if you don't have it, I promise you, this same self-righteous attitude will begin to crop up within you. And that may make you really angry to hear that, but I want you to know that it's true. Um, so listen to, listen to what Job's issues were. So his issues were two, twofold. The first is that he thought God was unfair. He thought that God was unfair. God does not treat me right. And Elihu has also called out the fact that Job feels as though he's been treated unfairly. He's saying, this is not right. Listen to what he says. Jump down to verse uh, 12 and 13. He says, behold, in this you are not right. I will answer you, for God is greater than man. Why do you contend against him, saying he will, he will answer none of man's words? And Elihu's whole point is, you can't come to God. Like, you are not able to speak to God in the way you've been speaking to him. Why? Because God's greater than you. God is so much greater than you. God is greater than man. Now, he's not prohibiting lament here, but his point is that Job has acted as though God and him are equal, and this is not true. And I just want to, again, bring this back to, this is very true of sufferers. If you've ever met someone that has suffered for long periods of time, typically what happens is they get in a spiral that spirals them downward and downward and downward into a pit of depression. And I would argue the beginning of that pit or the beginning of the depression actually starts with this kind of self-righteous attitude. And again, I'm not saying we need to go and kick in the doors of people who are suffering and tell them what's true. But we do it. We, they need to hear, though, what is true. So that's the first thing, that God's unfair. God does not treat me right. The second is that he believes God is silent, that God is not speaking. So notice, um, jump down in verse... Uh, it has escaped me in this moment. I'm sorry. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Verse 14, sorry. For God speaks in one way. I'm sorry, that's not, that's not correct. I don't know why I don't have that in front of me. But he's silent. <laughs> Just trust me on this. Uh, it's, it's in, um, yeah, verse 12 and 13, I guess. Sorry. So he says, behold, in this you're not right. I will answer you, for God is greater than you. God is greater than man. So he's silent. That's the second thing. Uh, I thought Matthew Henry's words were really striking. He said this about this passage. He said, Woe to the clay that strives with the potter, for he gives no account of any of his matters. He, that's, that's God, he gives no account of any of his matters. He is under no obligation to show us a reason for what he does, neither to tell us what he designs to do. In what method, at what time, by what instruments, nor to tell us why he deals thus with us. And his, it's, it's a warning here for sufferers in this way. And, and the warning is simply this. When you suffer, there will be a temptation to believe that God is silent. To believe that somehow God doesn't see you. That there's, there's like some plate over heaven and God doesn't see you. He's silent. That somehow he, he's, he's not fair to you. And brothers and sisters, when this temptation comes to you, I just want to encourage you, we can't ignore them. When these kind of temptations come, if you ignore these temptations of, oh, I, I know, I'm, I'm, I'm believing that God is silent, but it's okay, those thoughts will go away at some point. 
it will continue to spiral you in a direction that will eventually destroy you. And I want you to notice the first point then of today. It's, it's this. It's at the top of your page. He says, God's, pers- it's God's perspective is heard when He speaks and His speech intends to save. So I want you to see what Elihu then goes on to say. So he goes on to say, and if you jump down real quick to verse 29 and 30 of chapter 33, he says, yes, God does these things again and again for people. He rescues them from the grave so that they may enjoy the light of life. And then verse, verse uh, 14, he says, for God speaks in one way and in two, though man does not perceive it. So I want you to see God's speech here that God does indeed speak. Now, we know, I think we know, I hope we know, that God speaks through His Word. Chiefly, mainly, He speaks through the Bible. This is the main way that God speaks to us. He speaks to us through His Word, by His Spirit. But I want you to notice what, what, how else God speaks to us. I would, I would articulate that He speaks, and I think this passage is articulating, that He speaks in two different ways, distinct ways. So you see verses 15 to 18, he speaks through the conscience. Now the conscience is simply the mechanism that God has given everyone. Believer, unbeliever, everyone. Everyone has been given a conscience, and the conscience tells us what's right and wrong. Romans Romans 2, 14 through 15, just hear what Paul says. He says, for when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves even though they do not have the law. His whole point there is Gentiles, when they obey the law, they are obeying the law. In verse 15, they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse and even excuse them. So his whole point is Gentiles also have this conscience. It tells them what's right and what's wrong. I love what Christopher Ash went on to say. He says, it is what we would call in this passage the voice of a guilty conscience, that strange terror that afflicts us when we know we are guilty and unforgiven. So God speaks not just through His Word, He also generally speaks through the conscience. Now listen to what He says in verse 15 through 18. Now He's going to, Elihu is going to refer to this as a dream, but notice what He says. He says, in a dream, in a vision of the night when deep sleep falls on men, While they slumber on their beds, then he opens the ears of men and terrifies them with warnings. I don't know about you, but have you ever woken up from a dream and thought, that was terrifying, and thought, I think there maybe was something beyond just that dream? (laughs) Maybe you've never thought that, but I think when you talk to most people, you find out they have dreams often that remind them something's not right, something's not okay. And that's his whole point here. And he says in verse uh, 17 that he, here's his purpose in doing this though, that he may turn aside from his deeds and conceal pride from a man. And then here's, what he, here's his purpose. He keeps back his soul from the pit, his life from perishing by the sword. So the conscience is meant to speak to us and the purpose is, it, is God saving us. He's, he's, trying to, he's trying to not make us perish, perish in that way. So that's the sec- first way. Let me give you the second way he speaks. It's actually through suffering that he speaks. Verse, jump down to verse 19 of chapter 33. He says, man is also rebuked with pain on his bed and with continual strife in his bones. 
so that his life loathes bread and his appetite the choicest food. I think C.S. Lewis, he sums it up really well. This, the same idea very, um, very clearly when he says, uh, God whispers, uh, sorry, uh, one more. I hope it's there. Well, let me just read it to you. God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks in our conscience, but he shouts in our pain. And then he says, pain is a megaphone to rouse a deaf ear. I want you to think about that for a second. That pain, so I'm going to read it one more time. God whispers in our pleasures. He speaks to our conscience, but he shouts to us in our pain. And the shout of him is that there's something deeply wrong with humanity. There's something deeply wrong in us. I want you to consider for a second. If you went into a hospital and you saw a doctor and he was working on somebody that had cancer, and rather than treating the cancer, what he did is he went in and just gave the cancer patient morphine. And morphine, all morphine does is just make you not feel anything in that way. So rather than making him, rather than making him uh, actually fix the problem, actually get to the source of what's killing this man, if the, the doctor just went in and said, here's your da- daily dose, dose of morphine, brothers and sisters, I would argue, I think that's what our culture does to us all the time. We do, it, we do it through many, many different means. We do it through our trinkets. We do it through our toys. We do it through all the things that, that, that dull us to the sufferings all around us. It removes, it's seeking to remove the temporary pain so that we actually don't hear God speak anymore. Proverbs 24, 11 says this. He says, rescue those who are being taken away to death. Hold back those who are stumbling to the slaughter. That's what a wise man does. Now, you're probably wondering, okay, Daniel, so God speaks to us through our conscience, He speaks to us through our suffering, and you're saying that God, that, that oftentimes our culture and our own hearts, they, they try to numb those things, put those things out here. But do you see any situations like this from the Lord Jesus? How does He respond to this? Turn with me real quick, and I, I'm going to do this twice today. Turn with me real quick to Luke 13. It'll be on the screen if you want it. Um, but turn real quick to Luke 13. Now, in Luke 13, there's a situation that took place. That we're not privy to all of it, but we can, we can deduce, basically, what happened was that Pilate, who was a ruler at the time, mingled the blood. He took the blood of Galileans, and he mingled it with a sacrifice. Now, what that would have done, would, that, would have been a very, that would have been a deep desecration upon the people. It would have made them think, that somehow these people were cursed or somehow that the community, the land or something was cursed in that way. Listen to what he says in Luke, Luke 1. This is what the author of Luke says. He says, There were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. Now, I want to be very clear in this moment before we go on. There would have been people likely sitting in that crowd as he was answering this question whose families was a part of the people who got their blood mingled with the sacrifices. And it's not, it's not a stretch to think about that, because a lot of people were related at that time. It was a very small-knit community. And, and basically what he's saying here, they're saying here is, yeah, remember that deep, that, that terrible tragedy that happened? And Jesus, listen to how Jesus responds to it, though. He answers in verse 2. 
And he said to them, do you think these Galileans were worse sinners than all other Galileans? Basically, cutting out the legs of what they were assuming, that basically these Galileans had somehow suffered worse or somehow were getting their punishment. He's saying, no, that's not true. They were no worse sinners than anyone else. He says in verse 2, do you think these Galileans were worse sinners than all of the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? Listen to what he tells them. No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you all likewise will perish. Now, we may think immediately, well, that's really rude. How dare Jesus say something like that? And I just want to say to us, I think it reveals something about suffering here in this moment. Because there's a, there's, a, there's a tendency that when suffering happens for so long, people can become so self-righteous and they think, oh, look how awful they were. Look how awful these Galileans were. Yeah, yeah, yeah. God, he probably doesn't even exist because look at what happened to these Galileans. Or, or like what you hear people say when they say, look at 9-11. You know why I don't believe in Jesus? Look at 9-11. That, you hear that? Things like that? Or look at this situation. Or look at world hunger. And you know what Jesus would say to that? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you all likewise will perish. Do you hear that? I want you to hear that word this morning. And then he goes on. <laughs> he doubles down and says in verse 4 and 5, were those 18 on whom the Tower of Siloam fell and killed them. So again, he references a very probably well-known situation in the community. And he says, you remember that tower that fell on all those people and you all thought those people were cursed? He says, do you think they were worse offenders than all others who lived in Jerusalem? No. This is what he goes on to say in verse 5. I tell you, but unless you repent, you all likewise will perish. There's a very important piece we need to see here from Job and from Jesus' own words. That is, you need to repent. You need to repent and believe on the Lord Jesus. And this is the thing a sufferer needs to hear in their self-righteousness. Do not let this suffering rot your very soul out. It's no effort for me to feed you more morphine and you not to see your biggest need. And this is extremely important for the person who wants to point to all suffering in the world and say, that's why I don't believe in God. We need them to hear, unless they repent also, this worse will happen to them. Here's what I want us to see. Since sufferers need to hear God's perspective, we must graciously, prophetically, and impartially speak. And then secondly, God's perspective is heard when He speaks, and His speech intends to save Okay, so that's the first temptation, that God is gracious, and the sufferer believes that God is potentially not gracious. Let me give you a second one. The truth is that God is faithful, and His justice is fair. But the temptation is that God is somehow not faithful. Let me give you another one. Let me give you another example. Take Fred, for instance. Fred, um, he was, uh, a truck had run a red light, and Fred was sitting at a stoplight, uh, and it crushed Fred's Honda Civic, breaking his back. The accident put him out of work for three months. He lived in chronic pain, and the whole time angrily asking, why me? Why me? He looked around, he saw healthy people, and he envied healthy people, and became more and more and more depressed. And I think each of us could look around and see people in our lives, and we could say, they've continued to degrade. Suffering has come to them, and they've continued to get worse and worse and worse and worse. Not even physically, necessarily. 
but they've continued to get more and more and more depressed. And it's because at some point, at some place, they've begun to say, why me? Why me, God? Why, why is this happening to me? You're not really faithful. You're not really good. And I want us to see what, what Elihu says to him. Jump down to chapter 34. Now, 34, chapter 34 is really long. I'm going to save us another week from looking at a whole chapter of Job. Uh, I just want us to see the main point and jump down to verse 10 of chapter 34. Verse 10 of chapter 34. I want us to see God's, God's godness. Actually, verse 14, jump there first, and then we'll look at that. So God's godness, God's godness what makes God God. Listen to what he says in verse 14. Referring to God, he says, If he should set his heart to it and gather to himself his spirit and his breath, all flesh would perish together and man would return to dust. You know, let me just give you one example of how you're not like God. You, if, you, if your spirit, if you try to receive your spirit or pull your spirit back, it wouldn't hurt anything. It'd just be like, but when God does it, listen to what it says. If he were to gather his spirit, if God were to gather his spirit and his breath from the earth, all flesh would perish. Me, you, all of us included, back to dust. We don't think about this very often. Because if we think about it, we begin to think about it, it's very humbling to believe and to remember we're creatures. We're not the creator. We're not the creator. We are creatures. And this is the godness of God. This is what makes God God. That if he were to remove his spirit, then all flesh would perish. And then listen to what Elihu is trying to show Job here. Jump back to now to verse 10. He says, Therefore, listen to me, you men of understanding. Far be it from God to do wickedness and from the Almighty to commit iniquity. So what, what, he's, what he's trying to point to Job here, he's trying to show Job that, that Job has acquitted to God that God has somehow treated him wickedly. So I want you to see two points from this. God is not wicked, and God is not wrong. So God is not wicked. And for some of you, you're probably like, well, of course God's not wicked. But I want to ask you, how, how much have you suffered? How much have you suffered? How long have you sat in the pit, in the misery of suffering? And let me tell you, there's going to come a day, if maybe the Lord's gracious to you and he takes you quickly, but there's going to come a day, if the, if the Lord keeps you 50, 60, 70, 80 years, you will not have the capacities you do right now. You will not be able to even probably get your own food. And this is coming for all of us. This is coming for me. This is coming for you. And I want to just remind us of this. So you're not sitting there right now thinking, yeah, God's wicked. And I just want to ask, how much have you suffered? And I want you to see that God is good. And this is what Elihu's bringing to Job. He's trying to bring him the freedom and the peace to see this. Look at what he says in verse 11. For according to the work of a man, he will repay him. And according to his ways, he will make it befall him. Of a truth, God will not do wickedly. And the Almighty will not pervert justice. And as much as a sufferer wants to believe that, oftentimes the temptation is that God is wicked. God really doesn't have my best interest in mind. And it's the first temptation in the garden. It goes right back to the Garden of Eden. It's exactly what they believed in the garden, that God somehow doesn't have their best interest in mind. So it's God's not wicked. Here's the second, that God is not wrong. 
And it's simply that God is just. He says in verse 13, who gave him charge over the earth? And who laid on him the whole world? So he's asking Job, so so did you give charge to God? Did you allow God to be the one who's in charge? And he's saying, no, not at all. So I want you to see the second point. It's at the top of your paper. It's God's perspective is fair, even when we cannot perceive it. God's perspective is fair, even when we cannot perceive it. And all this begins to beg the question then, where is God's justice? Where's His justice? Where do we see the justice of God on display? And you know, the people of Israel struggle with the same question, wondering in their their own exile, why? Why has all this happened to us? Why has all this come to pass? We read the passage this morning in Malachi. Malachi 2, you can turn there real quick and this is where we'll end. Malachi 2 The prophet Malachi comes, and he's indicting the people of Israel. He's telling them how they're wrong, and he tells them in verse 17 of chapter 2, you, speaking to the people of Israel, you have wearied the Lord with your words. Now, the people responded in verse 17, and they say, but you say, how have we wearied him? The people wondered, how are we wearying the Lord? And this is what Malachi says, by saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Now, I just want to pause in that moment. How similar is that statement to what we see, not just all around us, but everywhere in our day? Everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and He delights in them. Or by asking. So, He says, that could be one way, but here's the second way. Or by asking, where is God's justice? Where is God's justice? Where is God's mighty hand of action to save His people? Where are you at, God? All this has happened. You think about, we've heard about Jack. We heard about Fred. Both suffering. We could all point to millions more. Where are you at, God? Listen to what he says in verse, the next verse. This is the Lord responding. And he says, behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way for me. Now, I want you to notice this, this verse is referenced in all three synoptic gospels. And it's referenced and pointing to John the Baptist. And if you remember John the Baptist, when he came on the scene, he was baptizing, and he basically came and said, this verse, this chapter, the New Testament authors is picking up and saying, the messenger, yeah, that's John the Baptist. Notice what it says, though. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way for me. Now, who did John the Baptist prepare the way for? The Lord Jesus. The Lord Jesus. You want to know what God's answer to suffering is? That He comes down in human flesh. That the Son of God in perfection in heaven said, I hate this. And He comes and He lives a life of perfection. And He dies for sinners. You want to know where God's justice is? It's displayed on the cross. And he says, Malachi 3, he says, Behold, I will send my messenger, that's John the Baptist, he will prepare the way for me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. You want to know where where the justice of God is? Listen to the words of John the Baptist. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. 
You want to hear the justice of God? You want to know what the sufferer needs to hear in every single moment? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's what he needs to hear. And not just the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You need to see Jesus on the cross saying from the cross, it is finished. And if one day, one day, maybe not today, maybe not today you sit there and you're suffering. But one day, one day you're going to remember this in your suffering. You're going to remember this in your suffering. And I'm telling you today, there's no other hope. There's no other hope for you today. Listen to Acts, Acts 2, 23-24. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosening the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. The sufferer desperately needs to hear God's perspective. And God's perspective is fair even when we cannot perceive it. God's perspective is fair even when we cannot perceive it. And I want to say, and I, I've heard oftentimes people will say with the book of Job, well, my suffering is not anything like the book of Job. And I want to say, I think we all actually suffer in many ways. And we could bring up that triangle again. You don't have to bring it up, Tony. But I think all of us suffer in many ways. And the tendency of the human heart is to think, I don't deserve this. And the reality is, is you're right. You deserve worse. Me and you, in our sin, deserve extremely worse than we're ever given. We, I heard it put really well yesterday, and I just love it. Sin is not just missing the mark. Sin is missing the mark. If you think about an archer and an arrow, sin is not just missing the mark just a little bit. Sin, if you think about an archer and a king standing behind the archer watching the archer shoot, you know what we have done in our sin? Not not only have we missed the mark, we've turned around and tried to kill the king. That's what we've done in our sin. And the hope of the gospel is that all those who turn from their sin and trust on the Lord Jesus, that they will be saved. God's perspective is fair, brothers and sisters, even when we cannot perceive it. So I want us to turn now. uh, Actually, I wanted to give us a time of response before we do this. Uh, I just want to encourage you, and maybe you're a sufferer here today. Maybe Maybe you are actually sitting there and you're not a sufferer. I just want to encourage you to consider what has been said today. To consider God's response to the question, where is God's justice? And his response is sending the Lord Jesus to take the death for sinners. So consider what we've heard this morning. Uh, I just want to give us a time of response. You can respond however the Lord's prompting you. You can sit there. You can come forward. You can do whatever you want to do to respond. And I'm just going to give us a minute to do that. And then we will move to the dedication.